Good evening, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSC, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Um, I've had only one previous event in this room, and it was hard to hear, so I hope you can all hear me without uh, the mic, but it's not important because I don't have the really important things to say. Lee Batchett does. Um, and it's my pleasure to be here to welcome you to this event, to introduce Professor Badgett, and to say that I think that this is an event about one of the most important issues in social equality which we face today, and one which we should take very seriously. M.V. Lee Badgett is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Public Policy and Administration at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She's also the research director of the Williams Institute for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, Law and Public Policy at UCLA. Her most recent book, When Gay People Get Married, What Happens When Societies Legalize Same-Sex Marriage, was published by NYU Press in 2009. It focuses on the U.S. and European experiences with marriage equality for same-sex couples. Professor Badgett has testified on her work before Congress and many state legislatures, and she was an expert witness in California's Prop 8 trial, a significant thing if you don't know what that was. In 2008, Curve magazine named her one of the 20 most powerful lesbians in academia. Badgett received a PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley in 1990 and has a BA in economics from the University of Chicago in 1982. The only thing missing from her credentials is more visits to the LSE. I hope you will join me in welcoming Lee Badgett. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really wonderful to be here and quite an honor to be introduced by your, by your wonderful new director. And I want to thank uh, uh, Wendy Sigal-Rushton and the Gender Institute folks for, uh, for the very warm welcome. Can you all hear me okay? Is this mic close enough? Okay. All right. So somewhere in here I have a presentation. Oh, there it is. Amazing. Always amazing when it happens. So some of you may be upset, but probably a lot of you will be relieved to know that although I am an economist, um, a lot of what I'll talk about tonight is not necessarily just about the economics of uh, same-sex marriage. It's, it's in there somewhere. But really, um, I've approached this topic from a, a very um, practical perspective. Um, things have changed quite a bit uh, in the world with regard to uh, equality for LGBT people in general, but in particular with regard to legal recognition of same-sex couples. And I, I say this, it's, it's like a blink of an eye. So since you've already heard when I graduated, you can figure out how old I am. But I'll just say that I was seven and uh, was born in a state where uh, interracial couples were not allowed to marry. Uh, that was in 1967. Um, really, only 20 years later, in some ways only 22 years later, actually, uh, Denmark became the first country to recognize same-sex couples legally uh, with their registered partnerships. Uh, it took another th uh, 12 years before the Netherlands became the first country to actually let gay couples have the full rights to uh, getting married. Um, so things have changed very quickly. Um, and so we're in an interesting position now, I think. Uh, you're in an interesting position here as your government um, has 
putting this on the agenda for uh, for Parliament very soon. Um, it's a it's something that's on the agenda of many parliaments around the world. I spent a couple of weeks in Australia earlier this year talking about this with uh, members of the federal parliament and state parliament there. And what what's important and kind of surprising is really how little we actually know about what's going to really happen in these places when same-sex couples are allowed to get married. So that's what I got very interested in, um, the debate and the questions that got generated, which sometimes have to do with religion. I don't have very much to say about that. They um, sometimes have to do with, uh, with basic principles of equality, uh, which I think my work speaks to but doesn't grapple with directly. It sometimes has something to do with the economics, which actually I do have quite a bit to say about, but won't say so much today. And then sometimes it's actually about, um, uh, about some broader social science understanding of what's happened in these countries that now allow same-sex couples to marry uh, in the United States. You can see by the orange states that we're actually now, uh, we have uh, about 1 in 20, uh, sorry, about 20% of same-sex couples live in states now where they could get married. About 40% live in states where they could either get married or have something like your civil partnerships. We call them either civil unions or domestic partnerships. Um, so, so things are changing very quickly and we can see something uh, from the Netherlands, the country that's had same-sex marriage the longest. And today I'll talk about Massachusetts also, which is the state that's had same-sex marriage the longest since 2004. Um, and I'm kind of thinking about the, these countries and states as a social laboratory to help us ask these questions that come up in the debate. So will gay people change marriage? This is a question that the Church of England is asking, in fact. That's part of their... Uh, um, opposition to allowing same-sex couples to marry. Will marriage change gay people? I think that's sort of what's behind David Cameron's advocacy of this issue. Um, he doesn't quite <laughs> frame it in that way, but in the U.S., conservatives frame it this way quite frequently, that we want gay people to be a little bit different from, from they are now. Um, for some people, that's about having access to resources and to social approval. For other people, it's about you know changing the way they, um, they live their lives as, as families. And then the last question that I think the data will tell us something about is this question that you're also grappling with here and many places are, which is, why not just have a separate institution? You know, politically, it certainly would be easier because it means that you know, the, uh, the religious institutions that don't want to marry uh, same-sex couples wouldn't have to grapple with that uh, as, quite as directly. Um, and, uh, and yet, you have one here. You've had one here for seven years now with the civil partnerships, and this is obviously uh, hasn't ended the conversation. So there's uh, quite a bit to be said about that, I think even from a social science perspective. So before I show you a uh, few charts and slides of different numbers, I thought maybe I would start with a story um, to kind of give you a sense of what I think is happening in the places where same-sex couples are allowed to marry. And... Uh, I will tell you the story of some friends. Actually, these weren't people in my study per se, but they were a Dutch couple whom I'll call uh, Stephanie and Ingrid. And uh, when I first got to know them, well, of course, I was telling them about my project. I went to the Netherlands for a year to study what happens when, uh, when countries allow same-sex couples to marry. So I was telling her about this, and her response was, was automatic. She said, I hate marriage. It's a heterosexual, patriarchal institution. And, you know, it's not something that I want to have anything to do with. So being an undaunted researcher, I, you know, kind of said, well, 
But what about you and Ingrid? Are, are you all married? She said, actually, yes, we are. <laughs> um, and I said, well, why, if you, if you don't like the institution? She said, well, our accountant said, since you guys own a business together, you should get married. So, so we did. So, so somewhat of, a, of a, an odd story, I thought. Um, and as I got to know them a little bit better, I found out a few more details about this story. So one of them uh, was that they, well, since it was their accountant that suggested they get married, you will not be surprised that they chose the time. Also, in the Netherlands, to get married, you have to go down to City Hall to get married. That's the only place you can do it. Um, and so um, not all time slots are equally desirable. Not many people want to get married at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. Um, so in order to entice people, it's free. Um, so Stephanie and Ingrid chose that time slot <laughs> to go down to City Hall because it was free. They saved actually hundreds of euros. Um, they took their requisite two witnesses down to City Hall, and they you know, did the, you know, the, the small ceremony that's involved and signed the papers, and then they were done. Now, maybe surprisingly because, they, you know, because of the opinion that I just told you about, they decided, uh, since they, they had a boat and the canal kind of went by City Hall, that they would take a little boat ride through, uh, through Amsterdam, which is actually not an uncommon way to celebrate weddings, as it turns out in the Netherlands, I learned. Um, and they brought a little champagne and a little strawberries and that sort of thing. So as you can see, there was already sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of discordance with kind of this claim about the, the way they really saw marriage. And as they were traveling along, Stephanie said, you know what, I'm going to call my father. He'll get a big kick out of this. So she <laughs> got her, her, her cell phone out, and she called him and said, Dad, guess what? We just got married. On the other end was silence. In fact, she heard her father start to cry. He didn't understand why she would get married, one of the most important things in a, a daughter's life from a father's perspective, and he was not invited. So they, you know, they had a difficult conversation, and, uh, and it actually caused a rift uh, between them that actually was never fully healed before he died. So it's actually, while uh, uh, a, a story with some funny elements to it, um, I think it shows the complexity of this situation. On one hand, people have very strong opinions about marriage, which are sometimes informed by the fact that they were excluded from marriage for a long time, in some cases. Um, and they have different reasons for choosing to get married. Some are very practical, and as we'll see in just a second, some are very different. Um, but in the end, marriage is actually something that the two people getting married don't get to determine. It's not something that's simply a contract. It's not something that's simply an act between two individuals, no matter how meaningful it might be to them. But it is also something that is part of our social fabric and that other people have opinions about and that other people will, uh, will uh, see as saying something important about who those, uh, who those two people are and how they're going to live their lives. So I think that's really the story that, that I want to tell today is that uh, something to give you a sense of that complexity um, in the midst of, of some fairly simple things, too. So, let's see here. Let's start with the first question. <laughs> so, will gay people change marriage? There have been actually many dire predictions about this. Um, as yet, uh, no uh, parts of the U.S. have you know, fallen off as a result of letting same-sex couples get married. Um, but it, it has been a concern in some quarters. Um, I want to look at this, this first question 
from two perspectives. One, kind of the perspective that I just alluded to with regard to Stephanie and Ingrid, which has to do with thinking about marriage as something people do. It's a, it's a verb. You get married. Um, and here, this is the point where I think a lot of people, especially on the sort of liberals or left side of this question who think gay people should be allowed to get married, they just they don't understand why this would matter to anyone else. Because, you know, why would my getting married to another woman affect uh, 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 another woman's decision to marry a man or not? Um, it just doesn't make sense to people. Um, so I'm going to ask this question looking for evidence of, of what might be different for same-sex couples. Do they marry for the same reasons? Um, now, the Netherlands is a very interesting place to study this. I'll say something about Massachusetts, but in the Netherlands, actually, both same-sex couples and different-sex couples have lots of choices. They could choose to not get married, and actually the government will recognize them uh, in terms of all sorts of types of um, uh, questions, policy questions related to taxes and to public benefits. Um, so even if they don't get married but live together, they're treated as a couple. They could choose to get a registered partnership, which was the intermediate solution for same-sex couples, um, or they can get married. So everybody has all the same choices. Um, so it's very interesting, I think, to think about why people would choose to get married in that context. So let me start with just kind of a, a simple little schema here. If you can see this, this is the way an economist would start off asking these questions, right? So uh, it's, it's a pretty simple thing. You know, you have to have certain kinds of preconditions, I think, which we don't really think too much about. There is an economic definition of love. If you really want to know what it is, I'll tell you. It's kind of appalling. Um, <laughs> but we know that things like education and income and age matter for people's decisions to marry. And they have to have the option to marry. So that's not, that's not a trivial thing, but they have that in the Netherlands. You know, so what might create value for people to, um, to want to, to marry? Um, the, the things that we often think about are the legal framework, sometimes explicit benefits that come with getting married. Although I will just say, everybody who learned that I was an economist said, the first thing they would say to me was, well, we didn't really get any, any kind of economic benefits out of getting, getting married. So, um, so I quickly learned that I was going to have to think a little bit beyond that. Um, commitment actually plays a role in economic theories about marriage because it's, marriage is something that's thought to enhance commitment, to promote it, to to hold people together uh, legally um, in, that, in that commitment. And while there may be some disagreement with partners in kind of making that decision, the negotiation process we think will be heavily driven by that benefit and people will decide to get married or not. Um, so it's a fairly straightforward kind of thing. But when I talked to people, I realized it was actually a lot more complicated. There are other things that people value, as it turns out. Uh, <laughs> So sometimes people want to get married to express something to other people, not just to the person they're getting married to. They want to say something to their family, to their friends, to their coworkers, to their employer, to the government. So sometimes they want to make a, a political statement uh, in that way about what marriage is and how they think about it. Um, and there are actually many other kinds of barriers that same-sex couples in particular do have to grapple with, decision-making, parts of the decision-making process that same-sex couples just don't really have to think very much about. Um, you know, for instance, the social disapproval of family members, this one down here on the bottom, uh, particularly mothers, actually. Uh, so the, the same-sex couples that I interviewed in the Netherlands as part of this study um, would often say that they thought a lot about the fact that they were, uh, may face some disapproval from family members. So sometimes they just didn't invite them to the wedding. Uh, sometimes, they, um, sometimes they had long involved... Uh, uh, conversations and negotiations with them that were resolved, and sometimes in, in excuse me, very positive ways. 
And, uh, and sometimes they had to agree to disagree, and there were actually, again, some rifts, not unlike the one with Stephanie and her father, but some, some of these folks had, um, you know, could not come to an agreement with, with a parent, and so they, you know, were no longer really part of each other's lives in a very direct way. But those were really the exceptions. For the most part, as I'll say a little bit later on, most of, uh, most of the time those issues were either resolved or were just very positive to, to begin with. Um, so that's something that same-sex couples often have to talk their way through. Uh, some of the other barriers are things that, um, that you do sometimes hear different sex couples talking about. Um, so in the Netherlands, over and over, I was to- told that you know, people think of marriage as, as uh, bourgeois or bourgeois, that it's something that's just, you know, cool people don't do it. Um, that in some cases people were concerned about the... the Sort of opening their relationship up to state control. Sometimes they, um, you know, saw that that kind of um, the expectations of marriage as being potentially um, problematic because they were feminists in many cases. And this is something I heard a lot from the lesbians I interviewed. Like Stephanie, they were feminists and they were concerned that marriage was going to impose rigid gender roles. Um, so sometimes they had to think that through. Um, so these. Uh, even kind of laying all these things out and kind of thinking about how people resolve those and either decide to get married or not doesn't you know, fully do justice to the, to the complexity of it. But let me just give you another example of, of what the complexity can look like. So this was a, a woman named Ellen who was, when I interviewed her, was in the process of planning her wedding um, to another woman who I didn't, who I didn't talk to. Um, and Ellen described something like that romantic impulse up there. So Ellen was a feminist. She said all her life she had thought Marriage was not something she would ever want to be a part of. In fact, she was asked to be in weddings of friends, and she declined because she saw this uh, as a matter of principle, not something that she wanted to be a part of. And yet, one day, she was out with a, a different friend, not her partner. They were riding a motorcycle through the countryside. It's great detail. has nothing to do with what happened. <laughs> but she suddenly, she says, I mean, this is the way she tells the story, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, she suddenly realized in the midst of this beautiful day that she wanted to marry her partner. And she thought, how could this be? This is not me. This is not my, this is not my, uh, my set of political principles. And um, how, how, how could I think this? How could I think this? So she was um, stunned um, that she thought this. And she spent about three months thinking this through. Like, how, you know, is there a way I can make sense of this? And finally, she, she was able to make sense of it by thinking about this... Um, from a different political angle. So she said, well, people have worked very hard in our country to, uh, to win the, the right to marry. So we should honor that. So that's something that's important to at least think about. Um, at the time that I interviewed her, uh, well, in the US there's always a big hullabaloo about gay marriage somewhere, but she was following things that she said, you know, and in other countries you can clearly see that there's a conservative backlash um, related to what we've done here and what people want to do in other places. So clearly it's something that's important, you know, and this is, this is part of a larger conservative uh, backlash that's, uh, you know, more global. And so I can resist that in a way by getting married. Uh, and so she finally talked herself into seeing this as something that was not a complete disavowal of her prior life, but it was consistent in some way with her, with her, core, with her core principles as a feminist. Um, but then she had to talk her partner into getting married. <laughs> and her partner shared those same kinds of beliefs, so they spent another six months kind of negotiating and grappling with that, and 
Uh, and eventually they still, they decided to marry. They decided to marry. And I tell this story uh, because, um, because I think it shows a couple of things. I mean, it shows that it's, it's not an easy thing for people to decide. Having the right doesn't mean you're going to do it. And, uh, and for some people, um, that process of deciding that it is the thing that, that's right for them um, could actually take a, could take a little while. Um, and then it was taking them a while to actually plan their wedding. So add you know, all that together, and we're talking about more, more than a year of, of planning and thinking about this. Um, and secondly, you know, sometimes, sometimes people who felt rejected by an institution rejected that institution. Um, in the case of marriage, this is something that I heard from a lot of people that they, when they were younger, they didn't think that they really cared about getting married because it just wasn't an option. You know, so why, you know, why think about it as something that's that's desirable? And yet, sometimes people do change their minds. So the process of making these decisions is a complex one, and I've you know kind of talked a little bit about this, but overall, I think. What we see is that primarily the process is very similar. The reasons that people give for wanting to get married are similar to heterosexuals' decisions to get married. We know this from other research, um, that expressing love and commitment is a very important piece of it. The social recognition is an important piece of it. Um, And then there's a practical side that can also matter a lot, especially if you're going to have a child, you're going to buy a house, um, or you just need the the, uh, pieces of the legal framework that constitute kind of a, a, an off-the-rack sort of legal uh, arrangement, if you will, rather than a more do-it-yourself uh, approach that uh, couples in many countries find themselves doing, trying to cobble together a will and other kinds of documents that create at least some kind of legal tie between the two people who are not allowed to get married. So I would argue that from the perspective of the verb, to, getting, to, to get married, to marry, that... Uh, that we don't actually see any differences in the Netherlands. I think that's very similar in Massachusetts. So this is from a survey that I did with my colleagues at UCLA about five years after same-sex couples began marrying in Massachusetts. So we interviewed over 500 couples, and we surveyed over 500 couples. And the primary reasons uh, that they wanted to get married, the two that you can see up here, one is for for love and commitment, uh, to express that. Um, And then the legal recognition. So again, we see the symbolic, the commitment side, and also the, the practical side of getting married is being important. Actually, in the U.S., things like health benefits also come with marriage. We're a bit uncivilized in that way. And yet, um, health benefits were really one of, the, one of the things that was least important to people. Even though a lot of them got those benefits we saw in the survey because they got married, it was not the reason why they chose to actually get married. Um, so... So again, I would argue that we don't see any evidence of change, at least at this stage, that uh, this should worry us very much. The things that are different are not surprising. Um, we do see in the U.S. where we can track an administrative data, same-sex couples who get married are older than the other couples who are getting married at the same time. But again, that's not very surprising. It's pent-up demand. People didn't have the option before, so they've been together for a while. I think you see the same kind of pattern in the civil uh, civil partnership stats here as well, where the couples who are getting those partnerships are, are actually quite a bit older. Um, and that's, although they're getting younger over time, is that pent-up demand kind of works its way through. Now, in, so I, I wrote a book uh, that uh, Director Calhoun alluded to, um, in which I also kind of think about this question from the perspective of heterosexual behavior. So one uh, piece of evidence that might convi- you, know, you might want to look at if you're concerned about changes in marriage is the behavior of the heterosexual community. Do they change their propensity to get married, 
either before or after having children or their divorce rates. Um, and um, basically, there's no change in heterosexual behavior. I, would sh- I could show you chart after chart after chart, but it gets really boring when there's no change. You, know, to kind of, you wouldn't be able to tell from those data when same-sex couples started getting married. There's just nothing there to indicate that. And there are some studies that, are, that I've read and reviewed that are kind of working their way through the uh, journal publication review process that I think will also show that very convincingly um, from a more a different, different kinds of perspectives. Um, so... What about the other aspects of marriage? So marriage is also an institution that we can think of as a, as a noun. Um, and it's a public act. In Massachusetts, um, the, median, um, the, the, the median wedding uh, involved more than 40 guests. So it may only be two people getting married to each other, but a lot of people are witnessing that. And then there are the people who find out about it and the ripple effects, and then there are the employers, and then you know, there are... Uh, you know, the small children who are born into the neighborhood. There are all sorts of ways that it becomes a, a very public thing. Um, so it might be that if we're going to look for evidence of changes in the institution, that we want to actually look at how people think about the institution. Um, so I ask these questions. You know, is marriage recognized by the lesbian and gay people who are getting married? Um, do they think of marriage in the same way that heterosexual people do? I argue that they did in the context of getting married, but we'll look at it slightly differently. And then, are those marriages recognized by the heterosexual people around them? Because I think that response tells us a lot about, uh, about what's going on. And I, I did not interview them, but I did hear lots of stories about those responses from the, um, the same-sex couples that I interviewed. So I did tell you that, um, that for same-sex couples, one thing that's different is this concern about gender roles and a pretty explicit rejection of gendered roles. People don't want marriage to involve just that, that uh, approach. Um, I think another thing that's a little bit different is that same-sex couples are painfully aware of the political nature of marriage as an institution. Now, this is something that makes some people uncomfortable because we hear a lot about you know, the intrinsic institution of marriage, you know, the non-changing, ever-present institution of marriage. Um, but really, marriage has changed a lot over the years, and politics is almost always um, involved in that. So I think in the, in the sort of contemporary context, um, though, that can become uh, something that, that will make people um, uncomfortable, and yet it, it is, I think, a fact of political life that marriage um, has changed um, in many ways, whether it's you know, changing the age of consent, changing who can marry whom, whether or not people can divorce. There are many very big changes that have happened in the legal institution of marriage over the last hundred years, but those are all done by heterosexual people, actually, not by, um, not by uh, LGB people. So here's, here's a way to look at that. Um, I looked at uh, data from the European Values Survey of... Um, Dutch residents um, who were about the same age as the people I interviewed. So they were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and here's, here are the things that they say. This was in 1999. So this was before gay marriage uh, came to, to be. So that's sort of what we want to look at beforehand, not something, not data that's after. Um, and here are the things that they say are really important. Mutual respect and appreciation, talking about problems that come up, understanding and tolerance, we have faithfulness. That's a kind of an old-fashioned virtue. Um, living apart from your in-laws, boy, I'm surprised that's not more important. It just must not happen very often. Um, surprisingly, happy sexual relationship falls below the 50% line. Having children 
falls well below the 50% line. So I think what we see here uh, is a moving away by heterosexuals well before gay couples could get married from the kinds of things that people point to as defining traditional marriage. And the big part of that is about having kids, right? If less than half of Dutch couples this, uh, of this age group think that having kids is the most important thing, same-sex couples, most of whom don't have kids, um, are not so out of step, I think, with that. And the kind of companionate marriage that we have seen develop over time, which is not about gender roles, but is about the quality of the emotional relationship between the two people who are married, those are the things that, uh, that sound very much like the things that same-sex couples are after, not the gendered roles. So I think uh, thinking about the ideas about, of gay people for, about marriage, I don't think we see anything that's, that's wildly out of step. It just it seems to be part of the, of the, um, of the mix uh, in the society that those couples are in. So what about thinking about this from the other way? So if heterosexuals don't recognize these couples as getting married, then maybe it's because they're just really different. So I asked about this um, in different kinds of ways. Actually, mostly people just told me stories about this. Um, I think uh, people were concerned that they would feel expected to marry. And in in fact, um, they did get some pressure to marry as a result of this um, from lots of different uh, family members, uh, from uh, coworkers, from all sorts of people, uh, even people they didn't really know very well, about... um, about the fact that if they were a couple, then maybe they should at least think about getting married. So one couple that I talked to, Rachel and Marianne, went to dinner one night with Rachel's grandparents. And uh, her grandfather, all night long, made the case for marriage. It's like, well, you know, why wouldn't you? You have the right to do it. Your grandmother and I, we've been married a very long time. We've been very happy. And you should do that, too. You would be happy as well. This would be a good thing for you. And so he kind of kept on with this. And after a while, that kind of that actually they report that as being you know a moment when they had to think about this, and uh, and shortly thereafter they decided that he had a very good point, so they decided that they would get married. So um, uh, so certainly it's been recognized by people that you might not necessarily expect people from an older generation even. Um, sometimes friends and family are what what I kind of called the marriage police. So they'll say you know things like up. Oh, can't call her your girlfriend anymore. She's your wife now. Um, and one, one uh, male couple told me a story about getting a knock on the door one day, and there was a neighbor there who had a cake. And he said, happy anniversary. And this, this was a couple who had done the same kind of thing Stephanie and Ingrid did. They just went off to the, just the, to the town hall and got married without a lot of people there. Um, but everybody knew that it was their anniversary. And so... Uh, you know, this man was kind of embarrassed because his partner was out of town. They weren't celebrating this at all. So he was very touched that his neighbor had, had noticed this. Um, but uh, but it, was a, it was a telling moment. Again, like with Stephanie and Ingrid, we see that marriage is not just something about those two people, but it's, it puts you into a social institution that other people have expectations about. And then finally, I'll just note that, um, you know, the true test, I think, for a lot of people is, you know, does marriage really make a difference in terms of how parents and other people treat the new spouse? And in most of these cases, I had uh, talked to uh, couples who've been together for a very long time, so they had already established relationships with their families. So in some cases, they didn't report any big differences. But, um, but, but some reported that there was a difference, that uh, people started, that, that mothers would say things like, now I have another son, or... Uh, would 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 start thinking about the the spouse the new spouse in a different way. 
Um, and I think that's uh, kind of it takes me. Let me make sure I don't. I thought I had another chart there, but I don't. So I think that takes me to the point where we can actually kind of finally now grapple with this question, which is, well, if it's not a big change, if, it's, if gay couples aren't getting married for different reasons, they don't think about marriage differently, heterosexuals are treating them like other married couples, then why is this such a big deal? Um, it, was a, it was a pretty popular idea in the Netherlands, but, and it, but you know, it was not you know, something that you could necessarily take for granted. Um, so what changed? Either they're thinking about marriage differently or they're thinking about something else differently. And I think my argument is that what, they're, what is changing is they're having to change the ideas about what same-sex relationships are. So these are just a few examples of, of ways that, uh, that I've heard, not, not so much in the, um, the interviews, but in, in, in lots of different contexts about how sometimes you know, parents might see their son or daughter's relationship with uh, someone of the same sex. You know, that it's a sinful relationship, but for the sake of um, you know, the relationship with the child that might be tolerated. Um, or, you know, maybe it's a close relationship, you know, the roommate's kind of uh, relationship, but it's short-term, it's not something that's very deep and, and meaningful. Or maybe even it's a very intimate relationship, clearly, that's lasting a long time, but it might not, you know, if the son or daughter were, were to die, for instance, you know, the, the relationship might not persist past that point. Um, so I think the, you know, the question about uh, about how heterosexuals you know, think about marriage or think about same-sex couples, it seems to me that, that what's happened, at least what the same-sex couples have described, is that they're thinking about those relationships differently. They're not thinking about marriage differently. And I think this is, in my view, kind of the one thing that I was sort of surprised to, to learn from this process of, of doing these interviews is that I think we do see some good reasons why people are, are anxious about the, the debate, why there is a debate. Um, so we have, so this is where, you know, as you could tell, I think I said I wouldn't talk very much about economics, and so this is like my um, armchair anthropology or, or something, Sunday sociologist, I don't know exactly what. But, uh, but the anthropologists talk about cultural schema. These are cognitive structures. These are things that we use to, to, uh, to live our daily lives, to make sense of our experience. And in the context of family, um, you know, marriage is a, cog- is a cultural schema that helps us you know, determine our relationship to these new people that show up in our lives. Who do you invite to the birthday party? Who do you buy Christmas presents for? You know, who are you going to send a card to on their birthday? Those are things that actually are, um, are things that are determined by the answer to who, who is family. Now, just to give you a personal aside, I... Um, and married to a woman, and um, and I had a very excellent relationship with her mother. I thought for many years. The year after we got married, on our anniversary, we got a check in the mail. We had never gotten one of those before. <laughs> that was, you know, to sent us out to dinner for our anniversary. Uh, so, it does make a difference in terms of how people recognize and see as equal, the same as other kinds of family relationships. So that can take time for people. That can be a source of of, of change. That, that could be a source of anxiety. But I think in thinking about the, the larger anxiety that's been expressed about whether or not gay people will change marriage, I, I feel like I have looked for it in every possible form um, and can't find it, at least in the data that I collected in the Netherlands. Um, I will just add the postscript about the economic institution because I think there is, this does kind of map onto economic theory. How many people here are economists or budding economists? A few. So I'll just say, if you think about the institution of marriage as, as an economic institution, you can think about the rules for entry, 
um, which are clearly changing. And then you can think about the rules for what it means to be in the relationship and maybe how you would get out of it. Um, the thing that's changing are the rules to get in. There's nothing that has changed in any of the uh, countries that, or states in the U.S. that have passed these, uh, that have, have opened up marriage to same-sex couples. Nothing has changed about the, uh, the legal structure of how an ongoing marriage either continues or ends. Those things have not changed. So I think, um, you know, the, the, similar, the argument about the, the lack of change to the institution per se, that bundle of what it really means, um, is, uh, is consistent with economic theory as well as the more uh, qualitative evidence. Okay, I'm going to say a little bit less about this next question, partly because we, we have a lot less uh, data about this, but I think this is, this is a very interesting question. Will marriage change gay people? And my, my answer is probably uh, in different kinds of ways. So here's, here are just a few examples of ways that I think it has changed. This is from our Massachusetts survey. Um, we asked people about you know, what the impact of getting married was, and you see this, this point about acceptance by family. 62% of people said, uh, my family is more accepting of my partner, um, and their community is more accepting of them as LGB people. Um, this is something that we al- I also heard in the Netherlands, even from people who didn't get married, even from people who said they would never get married. Everyone said, I'm glad we have the right, we should have the right to marry, and that makes me feel like I'm included uh, as uh, in, in fully in Dutch society. Um, so I think that's a, a, a maybe a little bit surprising coming even from people who, who say that they don't want to marry and sometimes have principled objections to the institution, uh, but they still see that as important to be included. Another impact on children, this is, this is something that we hear about a lot. We only have kind of a sketch of an idea, really, about how to think about it. I mean, there's actually a very uh, large body of psychological and sociological evidence that suggests that children raised by LGB people do quite well on all their kind of developmental markers. Um, I'm not going to say too much about that. We did ask about the impact on children in our Massachusetts study, and mostly we, did, we got some qualitative responses from people. Actually, what was interesting was that some couples actually waited until they could get married before they decided to have kids. So... Um, you know, again, that's another little bit of evidence that suggests that um, gay couples are thinking about them the same way as many heterosexual couples, at least in the in the U.S. Although even in the U.S., 40% of children are born to um, to parents who are not married. Uh, they thought their kids felt more normal. Um, their their um, families now looked more like the families of their friends and of the kids that they knew at school. They found it easier to to care for their children. They could. They, just, they could explain who they were more easily when they had to go to the school or to the pediatrician with their children. Um, so the parents thought that it was important for their sense of security as parents and to their ability to be good parents to have the, uh, the right and to have used the right to get married. There are certainly other kinds of benefits to couples and individuals. There's actually a, a pretty big body of evidence that marriage is helpful uh, in many ways for the health and longevity of heterosexual people. Um, actually, a, a co-author, I was not the lead author, but uh, some public health uh, folks and I have an article that will come out in the American Journal of Public Health soon um, that shows that in California, the couples who could either get married or have registered partnerships actually had lower levels of depressive symptoms than people who were not, um, who were not in those kinds of relationships. Cause and effect, hard to say. Um, 
that's, that's a similar kind of finding that you see for heterosexual couples and in all the really good studies that have tried to split out the, what we call the selection effect, that healthier people are more likely to get married from the impact, the causal impact of marriage as an institution. Um, that usually there's some role for both of those things. So that may be true for gay couples as well. But at, at least there's a hint that we should be looking for those kinds of, those sorts of changes. One of the biggest things uh, that has changed for these folks is they felt much more visible as lesbian, gay, and bisexual. They were coming out when they talked about, when a woman would talk about her wife or when a man would talk about his husband. That was an act of coming out. And it happened a lot more. People said you know, that they had sort of stopped even really thinking about coming out um, uh, because they, you know, most of them felt fairly out in many parts of their lives. And, uh, and yet, when they talk about their, uh, their marital relationships, they see that as something that's different. So they come out on a much more frequent basis, and it just makes gay people more visible. Now, there are going to probably be some changes in the culture of, uh, of gay life. Um, these are things that we'll have to keep studying. Um, probably there will be new scripts for relationships. If you think about, you know, what a relationship is, you know, you meet, you know, you go out on dates, you, you know, fall in love, and then you think about moving in together, and you think about getting married. Those kinds of scripts that sociologists talk about for relationships. Now, for same-sex couples, will somehow or other have to uh, write in that formalization process in some way. Um, and... Um, and that could be challenging. It's certainly um, the issue about marriage is one that is very challenging within the LGBT community for the reasons that, that I mentioned earlier, that for some people there are, there are principled oppositions, uh, reasons to be opposed to, to the institution. I call those the, um, the dissenters, uh, the dissidents, the marriage dis- dissidents in the gay community who are worried about, about negative changes politically, uh, spending too, much res- too many resources on gay marriage, um, culturally, that will lose something important about gay life that has developed um, sort of organically rather than being imposed by institutions. And then there's some, I think, some ethical concerns about what this means for people who are not in relationships that are issues of concern. And, and those, I think, are those, I think, are important things to, to think about. But I'm not sure that it's possible really to avoid those in a uh, in a situation where um, where um, political advancements for the LGBT community, LGB and T community, um, are, um, are, are defined by formal equality. Um, that those are things that we will always have to grapple with, new opportunities, new challenges, and perhaps balance, balancing that to some extent with, with costs of things that some people do hold dear. Okay, so that was the second question, thinking about will... Uh, marriage changed gay people and the probably aspect of it. And then the last thing that I want to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about is, is why, why not an alternative status? You know, why is it that you know, something with the same legal rights and benefits would not be seen as, as equivalent to, uh, to marriage? And the two things that I've highlighted here that we've talked about earlier are the emotional value and the social value of marriage that I think would be very hard to expect would accrue to a, a a very new legal institution that many people don't understand, that they may not have ever heard of, and that you know, certainly doesn't have centuries of, of meaning behind it, for better or worse. Um, the same-sex couples that I talked to in the Netherlands were really clear. Again, this was whether they wanted to get married or not, they saw a registered partnership as something that was... Um, uh, designed to be a political compromise that treated same-sex couples like second-class citizens, um, and that 
just didn't fit with how they thought about their relationship. So a gay male couple I talked to, Otto and Bram, told me about their kind of the emotional and spiritual elements to their uh, deciding to get married. And I asked them, you know, do you think about registered partnership? And they said, you know, it sounds like something an accountant would invent. You know, you, you register, you count. These are things that are very business-like and didn't fit with how they thought about their relationship. Um, and I think uh, just, just reading a couple studies that have been done here in the UK with regard to civil partnerships, I think there is a, a, a sense uh, amongst the, the uh, one in particular that I, um, that I read um, that suggests that, uh, that there's a similar kind of sense that civil partnership is not, uh, is not exactly the same, kind of by definition. If it was going to be the same, why have civil partnership? One of the interesting things that you can see in the U.S., um, that, uh, that's harder to see when you look across countries is the, um, that uh, people seem to vote with their feet. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, if you look, I mean, ideally what we would be able to see is you know, a situation like in the Netherlands where people could get registered partnerships and then could suddenly get married, and so what happens? People still do get some registered partnerships, but there was a big shift over towards marriage. In the U.S. and the different states that allow same-sex couples to marry, in the first year, just kind of looking at that pent-up demand and that quick expression. Um, on average, 30% of the same-sex couples in those states got married in the first year. And actually, most of that was in the first month or two, um, really. Um, in contrast, if you look at civil unions, which, are, as I said, are like your civil partnerships where the benefits uh, and responsibilities are designed to be identical to marriage, um, a much smaller response, only about 18% on average. And then we have a few states that have these much more limited statuses, and then there's very little interest in there. Um, and just for the heck of it, since I found a few numbers, I actually looked at the um, numbers for the first year for civil partnerships. I, I want to say they were about um, 15,000 or so. Yeah, 15,271, I think, to be exact. Um, and, um, and there was an estimate uh, from the labor force survey here that there are about 135,000 same-sex couples in the UK, which actually I think might be a little low. But anyway, if you divide, you know, do the math, about 12% of UK couples got um, civil partnerships in the first year. Now, is that a lot or a little? I don't really know. It's sort of hard to say. Um, the, the regimes are different. People's you know, attitudes here might be different with regard to marriage. I know that the, uh, the um, office that was doing some analysis for Parliament about the, uh, for, for one of the government agencies about um, what would happen if same-sex couples were allowed to marry, they basically assumed there wasn't going to be a big increase in demand. I'm not sure that's going to be the case, though, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, if, if you all, uh, if your government does, uh, if your Parliament does vote for, uh, for same-sex marriage when it comes up, I think you'll have a chance to kind of test some of these lab results you know, that come from other countries to see how they play out here. But I think, you know, given the similarity of the marriage cultures, I actually uh, think it's, it's uh, quite likely that you'll see similar kinds of patterns as we've seen in two very different countries, the Netherlands and the U.S. You're not going to see a big change in um, couples' willingness to get uh, married and the reasons that they get married. I don't think there's a threat to the institution. Uh, everybody... Who, who gets married seems to understand uh, what it means, or, or they learn over time uh, what it means with, you know, in terms of their uh, reactions of their, their friends and family members. And there's, there's no change in heterosexual behavior, really, to, to be worried about, and I think that's sort of the, um, uh, maybe something that will make people feel the best about it. Um, 
But the fact that, uh, that the alternatives aren't adequate substitutes are things that uh, will continue to drive the debate. That's why the debate continues on today. Um, and uh, in the U.S., after the last election, which you may have heard about, I think a lot of people are now thinking maybe we've reached a tipping point. Um, so after going 0 for 32 in ballot measures, it kind of came up in state after state where, um, where bans were more solidified by voters uh, in those different, uh, in the 32 different referenda. Um, further barriers to letting same-sex couples get married. Um, we had three states that actually voted to let same-sex couples get married, quite unexpected uh, by the folks who, um, who were, uh, were looking to, at that prior record. So, um, so I think here, you know, you're, you're part of that debate. I would, uh, we had a, you know, there was a famous bet in one of the debates, uh, the presidential primary debates between uh, Mitt Romney and um, Rick Santorum, where you bet $10,000 on some, some point that they were arguing about. I won't bet you $10,000, but, but I would be willing to, uh, to bet that you will have a very similar experience and that you'll find out very soon. Thank you very much. questions. Um, would you prefer to take them in several in one go or one at a time? Or? Yeah, that might work. Yeah, um, we can try that. And we've got floating microphones. So um, if you do have a question, wait for the microphone. And if you could say um, who you are, introduce yourself, that would be great. Um, we've got a question down here. <coughs> down there. Um, is it on? Yeah. I'm Mike Thomas, um, and I wanted to ask if you would dare make a prediction about California in light of the latest ballot initiatives and the way that they went. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take a couple more, which is good, good for me, because it keeps me from going on too long about any one of them. Hi. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm a recent law graduate from LSE. Um, what a pleasure it was to hear your insights and research. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, I read recently that the government of Taiwan is considering uh, legalizing polyamorous relationships, Mm. and I wondered, um, I know it's sort of segueing from uh, same-sex marriage, but I wondered what you thought about that. Is it um, something you think might change the definition of marriage, even if, I don't know much about Taiwan, but even if you don't, is it something you think might change the definition of marriage, and if so, is that something we should be worried about? Okay. There's somebody else who I saw with the mic, yeah. Hi, I'm Josh. Um, I, you touched a little bit on some of the backlash within the, G- the LGBT community. Um, and I think one of the big criticisms has been that it's not the rising tide that floats all boats in the sense that it sort of differentially preferences people around predictable markers of identity. And I was wondering if you encountered any of that or what your experiences were um, just with, in terms of kind of power differentials or who, who's, if there's differences in the way that people are using marriage along different lines, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, well, let me, let me take these first three, three and then we can talk about some more. Yeah, the California ballot measure. So um, in the last election, 2008, well, actually shortly before the last election, um, the Supreme Court in California, the state Supreme Court, 
ruled that uh, that there was no it was unconstitutional to deprive same-sex couples of the right to marry. And so, in the next six months, about 18,000 couples got married in California. In the meantime, the opponents of gay marriage um, circulated petitions and put on the ballot. Um, a measure that would end marriage uh, for gay couples, that would put in the Constitution that uh, the gay, the gay couples could not get married. And it passed um, in 2008, much to many people's surprise. Um, and it was immediately challenged um, in federal court um, uh, because it kind of got shifted to that level because it was a constitutional amendment. And uh, it has gone through um, uh, a trial which was uh, quite an interesting experience. Uh, as your director mentioned, I was a, an expert witness along with many other psychologists and so, uh, some historians and other economists and some political scientists to talk about um, different aspects of, uh, of same-sex marriage. Um, that The judge in that case uh, ruled, again, that this time that the, uh, the ban on gay, ma- um, gay marriage violated the f- our federal constitution, and now that's moved up, courts of appeal, and it's sitting with our Supreme Court right now. And um, so what do I think will happen? I, if, if I had to really choose, and I really, I, this is kind of an uninformed opinion, but just on the principle that sometimes they would just rather not decide hard questions right away, that my guess is they will just let it go, that they will not hear it, and that would mean going back to the the, stand, the decisions that have already been made that would allow gay couples to start getting married again. But California is a really specific kind of situation that's, un, that's different from a lot of other states now because it's had domestic partnerships or civil unions for a long time, and so it's a very, it's a very small leap legally, and the judge who looked at all that evidence just said, there is no good reason why that you know that little gap there is something that that should exist. Um, so that's that's sort of my. It's really more of a guess than a prediction, I think. Though, um, in terms of uh, polyamorous relationships, so you know that does come up in the de- the issues about gay marriage. You know, it's kind of the slippery slope argument that some people argue that once you start thinking about opening up who would get married, that uh, that the, everything would start changing and. And I think if you are thinking about, um, you know, any any kind of legalizing any sort of re- relationship that would have more than two people, you would then move from just changing the um, the the entry requirements to actually having to look hard at the at the exit requirements and at what happens in the middle of those relationships. And I think, uh, you know, that is it's just a different. It's a different question. Um, so I don't know. I also think that uh, when you get beyond relationships of couples, it's very hard to know what those other kinds of configurations, w- you know, a family would want. You know, what is the kind of legal relationship that they would want? Kind of having something off the rack uh, may not, uh, you know, may not work particularly well. But I think certainly there are many countries around the world that have. Um, that allow you know people to marry men to marry have more than one wife, uh, for instance. So I think there you know there are examples of what those kinds of situations might look like. Um, it's not something that I know very much about though. But I do think that as an economic institution, it would get you know it would get complicated. So Gary Becker, in case you've ever heard of him, Nobel Prize winning economist who's written a lot about the economics of the family, he says. You know, those kinds of relationships are really hard because of monitoring problems, because you never know kind of who's doing what. So it does get, you know, it does get much more complicated, even as an economic institution. And then, let's see, the last 
question about, you know, are there differences in how some people are using uh, marriage and the question about rising tides not lifting all boats? Um, I think that the thing that will probably be more important in terms of thinking about the role of marriage and people's economic situations um, for the gay community is to realize that marriage only really deals with a very small part of those problems. Um, once you can get married, then you realize that, you know, that um, in our country that, you know, family incomes have stagnated and actually declined over the last 10 years. You'll have to deal with the fact that, you know, that our healthcare system, you know, is, is, is very problematic in terms of covering people with or without family relationships to folks who have health insurance. You know, that, uh, you know, there, there are lots of, that, that poverty is, is not really about, um, it, it doesn't go away when you get married. Um, so this is, you know, a question that comes up a lot in our, in our debate. So I think people will realize that marriage, um, you know, has some economic value, but that there are many other economic challenges that families face all the time, um, saving money for retirement, saving money to send their kids to college, that will, that, you know, that just won't be solved by that. So I, I think, you know, the, maybe the, the rising tide of, of marriage, you know, I don't, I don't think I would expect it to lift all boats or even a whole lot of them in, in, most, of the mo- in the most profound, big economic markers. Questions over here and here. Hi, my name is Bailey. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, my question has to do with international relationships, same-sex relationships. Um, I know that in the United States currently that is a big issue um, in terms of the importance of getting legal recognition for same-sex couples in the cases where one of the partners is not an American citizen. Um, and I know that that's been getting a lot of attention in the media in recent years, and that's something I'm very interested in. So I know that you are an economist, so perhaps you could also share with us some of the economic arguments being made um, in favor of legalizing gay marriage in terms of the angle of the benefits that it would provide um, for international same-sex couples. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested uh, if you'd notice any difference in age in terms of the couples that you um, interviewed, particularly in relation to the alternatives between marriage and civil partnerships. Because I think what was interesting in this country is that um, there was a certain reluctance to push for marriage by some, uh, particularly Stonewall, the big gay rights group here, held up for quite a long time. And I've always felt that that sort of might be age-related in terms of that I think my generation particularly just won't stand for anything other than uh, the same rights as our straight friends, whereas I wonder for people of a different generation who, for whom the prospect never exists, whether there's more of a tendency to um, maybe accept other, other regimes. Good question. Uh, hi, my name's Stuart. I'd just like to get your opinion on whose idea do you think the relationship of marriage was originally? Okay. Please. Whose idea? Okay, I'm going to save that one for last. Um, all right, on international relations. Um, 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a very interesting question. In the U.S., it's complicated because even though now 20% of same-sex couples live in states where they can get married, the federal government does not recognize those marriages for any federal purpose, for Social Security, for immigration policy, for taxation. And that is the subject of yet another set of lawsuits, actually, you know, sort of like what Mike was asking about Prop 8. So also sitting in the Supreme Court right now are several challenges to that law. The Defense of Marriage Act was what it was called actually signed by President Bill Clinton, who now wishes he had not signed it, but he did. And um, so it has, you know, it, that's the problem. You know, so until that's gone, it will be hard to, uh, to get anything changed. There is, a, um, there is a standalone piece of legislation that would change that, you know, just that little piece of it that's related to, uh, to partnerships and would put same-sex partners... Um, on the same kind of footing as uh, as different sex spouses, so it actually doesn't require marriage. Um, um, and it's interesting. So the Obama administration um, has tried very hard to find ways to make life better for LGBT people and same-sex couples without having to get it through Congress, because as you may have heard, that's a very difficult thing to do right now for a whole variety of reasons. And um, so he. Uh, ordered his, his State Department, asked the State Department to to stop deporting same-sex couples who were kind of in the process of potentially having to leave because of uh, because of the fact that one could not legally stay in the country. So, so but that's a temporary fix that really only applies to a fairly small number of couples. But I think most people think that that might be one of the things that will change first. The politics of it, though, do get a little more complicated because we also have a big political debate about immigration in general. So if it can be split off, it probably has a better chance of happening sooner. That's just my opinion. But, um, but, but we'll see. You know, that's, that's something that could change very rapidly if the Supreme Court takes up these DOMA challenges and finds uh, the, same, the, the same finding that the uh, Courts of Appeal have, which is that DOMA is unconstitutional. Um, about age, civil partnerships versus marriage. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and uh, so that's about the opinions of people about marriage more than you know, whether they've actually gotten the, the, that status or not. And um, I only, um, I guess I have a sense of it from the couples that I interviewed in the Netherlands who mostly were sort of my age, uh, you know, in their 40s and 50s. Um, and one or two were a little bit younger. And they thought that actually their, their generation, their cohorts were very different in terms of how they saw marriage. They did not feel... The, the antipathy towards marriage that some of the older people felt. And I think, you know, that probably comes from a couple of things is my, my hunch. Some of it is about, you know, the politics of feminism in the last 30 years, that there's a cohort of women who, who really firmly identify as lesbian feminists, and this became a very important part of their, of their um, ideological um, uh, principles that they live by. Um, and that is just very different now. Um, I think co- people who, who are younger, who've grown up at a time that, at least in some places and for some people, have, has been easier to, be, uh, to come out as lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender, that they will have a different experience with, with, with these institutions in terms of how they, they think about them. And as we start to see them open up, I think that will change. So there are some studies in the U.S. that show that, that a lot of, uh, in a couple of studies, uh, we see younger people being much more interested in the right to marry than, than older lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Yeah. Whose idea was it? Um, 
Well, I am uh, not a historian. Um, the historians that I've read um, acknowledge that uh, the marriage serves lots of different purposes um, that might be, you know, sort of going way back, peeling back all the layers. There might be things that, uh, that were important to societies. You know, some of it uh, had to do with, uh, a big part of it had to do, had a big social purpose of pulling people together and creating ties across family units and clans and um, that that uh, was, was something that was an important social purpose of marriage. Um, in other cases, you know, it was about, uh, uh, it at least had something to do with taking care of children. It had something to do with, um, with, with politics and with wealth and uh, handing, down, uh, uh, handing down wealth and understanding who was, you know, what was a legitimate marriage and therefore a legitimate uh, child under those kinds of situations. Um, and, and the historians note that things have changed very much in the last uh, 100, 150 years towards a, a kind of marriage that is less about some of those things and is more about that quality of relationship uh, between the two people who are, who are getting married. But uh, actually, a great book um, that I would recommend is by Stephanie Kuntz. It's very readable, has some great stories. Uh, it's called uh, Marriage, a History. Um, and uh, she uh, you know, talks about lots of different cultures, lots of different times, and, and how marriage has been has been different in many different places. Um, so that would be, you know, another place to look, better than my kind of economist perspective, probably, on that historical question. Um, we have a question here, and here, and... Ah, actually, about the state. That was another very important thing. Nancy Cott in the U.S. talks about marriage as being important in terms of... Um, you know, aligning family life with you know state interests and in supporting one another, and uh, and in you know kind of passing on civic life to to families. Um, hi, my name's Rav. I'm a master student here at the LSE. Um, this is a bit of a downer, but I wanted to ask about gay divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. On the places that have had gay marriage the longest, are we have we been able to recognise any trends in terms of the duration or the resilience of gay marriages and how that compares to the the heterosexual quote-unquote norm? Great question. Hi, I'm Marsha Henry. I'm from the Gender Institute here at LSE. Um, I just wanted to ask you a kind of more specific question about the empirical data that you've been collecting from the Netherlands and also the um, one of the first slides you put up had Denmark and the Netherlands as the sort of the two the two countries to um, establish uh, legal rights to same-sex marriage. They also happen to be two countries in the European context at the moment that have made significant changes in their marriage laws in relation to immigration in particular. Uh, In Denmark's case, quite punitive changes in my opinion (laughs) Um, in terms of the age of marriage in relation to um, migrant communities, um, particularly from South Asia and from um, Muslim backgrounds. So I was just wondering if you could say something about the state's kind of contradictory interests in regulating um, marriage in, in those two particular contexts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've got a question up here. I'm trying to, to see everybody, but I think that was the next 10 seconds.
Thank you. Uh, Hakan Sechinagin from Social Policy Department. Um, I just wondered whether class, race, and ethnicity are or have any impact on the trends you're talking about and in what way? Um, whether, they are, whether are they similar to the trends on those issues in heterosexual couples? Not. Thank you. You mean in terms of attitudes or well, I mean, to marry the, the, the trends you're talking about homosexual couples taking or the, the attitudes they have, I mean, how those things are impacted by class, race, and ethnicity, particularly in the U.S.? So let's see, gay divorce. Uh, that's an interesting question, and um, I don't think we know very much about that at all with regard to marriages specifically for same-sex couples. We do know something about um, about the kind about what gay couples look like in the U.S. At any rate, this suggests that um, that they look a lot like different sex couples in terms of. Um, uh, you know, assorted mating, birds of a feather. People get together with people who are like them, um, and those are the kinds of things that actually make couples more stable. Usually, um, with some exceptions, actually, gay couples are a little more likely to be interracial couples. So that may actually, at least in the U.S., that may um, you know kind of heighten the vulnerability to divorce, statistically speaking. Um, but we don't really know exactly with regard to divorce. With regard to civil partnerships and registered partnerships, we know a little bit. So in the U.S., the experience of those states has been very similar to the U.S. divorce rate for heterosexual uh, marriages. Um, so it doesn't look very different. Um, the, part, the dissolution rate for partnerships here in the U.K., okay, now you have to vote. Who do you think has a higher dissolution rate, men or women? How many people think men? How many people think women? Yeah, so you would win. So, yeah, the dissolution rate for, for female couples is about 4%, and for uh, men is about 2%. There is a really a very interesting study uh, from um, Swedish and Norwegian data um, that suggests, I think it's the Swedish data where you can actually even compare it to heterosexual couples. So they were looking at registered partnerships, um, not marriages, but registered partnerships compared to marriages and uh, um, the, in both of those countries, they started happening in the mid-90s, uh, early to mid-90s. Um, and they found that even holding constant things like age and differences in couples and that sort of thing, in, um, in Sweden, both gay men and, and lesbian couples had higher dissolution rates than did marriages. Um, and in Norway, they couldn't compare them to marriages, but the women, again, had higher, uh, higher divorce rates or dissolution rates. Um, so... You know, what does that mean? It's actually not totally clear to me um, because, I mean, so think about it this way. You know, heterosexual couples, you know, are getting married all the time um, at some point in their relationships. And let's just say that the expected length of a relationship is the same for a same-sex couple and a different-sex couple. Um, what would you expect to see, you know? So we know that they're really the same, but if you don't let the same-sex couples get married until partway through those relationships or at a different point in those relationships, then you would see shorter durations, I think, in a, a study like the one that I was just talking about. So I think it could just be it's possible that that's an artifact of, uh, of the fact that you're, 
you're starting the clock at different points in time for the same sex couples and the different sex couples. Um, but, it, but, it's, but it's hard to know. Um, and there may be other kinds of uh, stresses that, that lesbian couples face that we aren't capturing in those data. There may be differences in, um, in their thinking about marriage. Um, there may be differences in compared to, to gay men. Um, but, you know, I don't think we really know yet. But it's, it's, it's kind of the next question. The problem is the data are hard to get. Um, I, I think that's, that's the harder thing. Um, in terms of um, different states' interests related to immigration, yeah, I don't know very much about the, the Danish uh, situation and how that might be related to, um, to same-sex couples getting married, except... I think in the, some of the Scandinavian countries, and I think Denmark was one of these, and Norway and Sweden where we have these data, we do see a different pattern for gay men from lesbians. The gay men are much more likely to be partnering with men who are from other countries. So it looks like one reason why they're getting married is to get those immigration rights. That's possible. And maybe, it's, again, it's possible that you know, gay male um, kind of tourism networks pull them away into other countries and they're more likely to come up with partners in other countries than are lesbians. So that might be one thing. Politically, in the Netherlands, a really interesting thing happened after uh, while I was uh, in the Netherlands. So this was a few years after people had started getting married, and there was now a conservative government in uh, in power, and the immigration debate sort of uh, kind of took an unexpected turn. They didn't try to overturn gay marriage; they actually used it in the immigration debate. So what they did was they created videos um, showing two gay men kissing. And they forced everyone who wanted to immigrate to the Netherlands to watch that video, you know, thinking, I don't know, they would be grossed out or something. But, I mean, they were, I think they were consciously, really very consciously playing on the po- possibility of homophobia amongst people who wanted to immigrate and were trying to, you know, kind of use it in that way. And, and actually, and the gay couples that I talked to were very conscious of that, and they were very uncomfortable about it, about being used in that way. Um, and they eventually did stop doing that showing those videos. I mean, the immigration debate continues there. Um, Class, race, and ethnicity uh, in terms of thinking about gay couples themselves. Um, There is, in the U.S. at any rate, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, which is the place where I know the data best. Um, There is a lot of variation amongst same-sex couples in terms of um, class, race, and ethnicity. There is a stereotype that gay people are very affluent. Um, one of the first things that I that I studied before I got interested in the marriage issue was um, to look at that and to see, you know, is that just the marketing data that was being used to support that image, or was it something you would find in good data that the government might collect? And I think now we have um, from here in the UK, from the Netherlands, from all over the U.S., and several different data sets in. Let's see. I'm trying to think. There's another country that I'm forgetting where we have pretty good um, analysis analyses of data in France and. I think even in Italy, we actually see pretty much the same patterns, which are that gay men are actually less, they have lower earnings than similar straight men. Um, so there's a lot more class variation. In the U.S., we've looked at poverty in the gay community, and you know, amongst same-sex couples, they're actually more likely to be poor than our different sex couples. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely a lot of, of variation there. Um, so I think in terms of the actual marriage piece of it, that we know a little bit less about, but I think those patterns will probably, it's hard to know. You know, in the, in the U.S., uh, you know, marriage has, is much more common amongst white people. It's much more common amongst 
more educated and higher income people now. Um, so it, we may see some of the same kinds of patterns. Um, just to, to say, we're, we're getting close to the end. Um, we'll take about three more questions, but there is a reception at the Gender Institute afterwards. Um, so if I don't get to your question um, or, or call on you, first of all, I'm sorry, I tried. Uh, but feel free to come along to the reception and, and chat a bit, and hopefully you can have a chance to, to raise your question or, or have a discussion there. Um, in terms of hands, there were, were a couple of people in the back who had their hand up. One, um, two, and then we'll finish with this one if that's okay. One, two, three. Uh, hi, my name's Kieran, and I was very interested in the data that you showed, uh, showing the correlation between the reasons that uh, heterosexual and same-sex couples are choosing to cite and why they get married, uh, and in particularly how few people were citing children, having children, raising children, as being a reason behind getting married. I was wondering whether you thought that the move towards equalising marriage in countries all over the world is part of a larger cultural shift towards really doing things that benefit us and make us happy in the here and now, but don't necessarily think about building for the future of um, you know, cultural uh, institutions and whether it, was, uh, you know, whether it was largely driven by what we want to make ourselves happy now. You don't think kids make people happy? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Lee. You mentioned earlier uh, sort of support for same-sex marriages being a, a characteristic of left-leaning people, but I think, especially recently in the U.S. with the last round of um, initiatives, that you heard a, a lot more support from right-leaning people or conservatives and this idea that marriage is inherently a conservative institution that should attract support from conservative people. So uh, since you've been doing all this attitudinal surveying, do, do you see strains like that? And how might that change public discourse about the institution going forward? And uh, does that have any sort of economic ramifications as well in terms of your um, the way that someone might sell this as an institution to a broader set of people. Okay. Hi, I'm from the School of Oriental and African Studies, and I was wondering, one of your first slides, there seemed to be a high correlation between per capita income and same-sex marriage. And I'm just thinking, what are the prospects of um, what we call emerging markets of um, legalizing same-sex same marriage? Yeah, great. Oh, great questions. I think um, thinking about marriage and whether whether people are motivated. What, what, what's motivating the people who are trying to change things? Which I think is kind of getting at your question, maybe more directly, um, or, or maybe not. Um, I think a lot of people are interested uh, in thinking about the future. Um, you know, probably uh, uh, so to some extent they're thinking about the future of their own lives 
and in some cases where they are in their life cycle and understanding that um, that having uh, not just a committed partner but someone whose relationship will be recognized and uh, times that are going to be tough because remember every relationship ends every marriage ends you either die or you get divorced right so I think people are <laughs> people are thinking about that and uh, and want to uh, you know want to be ready and um, um, in the U.S. the the two I would say the two big things that in my opinion really ignited. Um, thinking about the rights of same-sex couples happened um, differently to gay men and to lesbians. For gay men, I think it was a lot about HIV and the AIDS epidemic, and seeing uh, partners denied access to their to their uh, lovers when they were dying, and seeing people have their homes sold out from under them, and recognizing that without those legal ties, they were very vulnerable at you know the, at the you know most important moments of their lives. Um, and uh, for lesbians, I think a lot of it was about the so-called lesbian baby boom in the U.S. I, I don't know if you had the same kind of thing here where, um, you know, suddenly it seemed like everyone was at least thinking about um, having babies. And I think that speaks to sort of the larger kind of generational issues. Um, and that also um, led to challenges in thinking about relationships both to children and to, to the two parents who were, um, who were, you know, producing these children um, you know, by different means. But, but they were consciously deciding to have these children and to raise them together. Um, and so uh, when those things happened, that's when we started seeing pressure on employers, pressure on local governments um, to recognize same-sex couples, and they started to recognize them. Um, and then we started seeing that get pushed up to the state level in the late 90s, and then uh, some states started to recognize same-sex couples. And now you know, we're kind of moving to this other stage of, of marriage. So, you know... It, it is an investment. It is an investment in the future, and it's partly about having kids. Lots of uh, uh, we looked at a, a really some great survey data in the U.S. done by the federal government, the National Survey of Family Growth, and you could see lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people in those surveys, and they they want to have kids, even if they don't have them now. Many of them want to. Um, so I think they're uh, the people are, you know, thinking ahead to the future, and they're thinking about the welfare of their children as well as their relationships over time. Um, in terms of conservatives in the U.S., well, I will, I, you know, this is a very interesting question. Yes, attitudes are changing very, uh, very quickly, I think. You know, we're now, and a lot of surveys are above the, uh, the 50% mark in terms of support for same-sex marriage. And I think, you know, the, the Prop 8 trial is a great example of that. It may, in fact, have driven some of this. So maybe you know this, maybe not. So the two people who where the lead attorneys in that case were um, Ted Olson, who was a Republican, worked for George Bush, um, and, uh, and David Boyes, who was a Democrat. And in fact, they were on opposite sides of Bush v. Gore, which is what got us George Bush in 2000. And uh, this time they were working together, and they you know, made these this conservative case for gay marriage, and they made the equality case for gay marriage. And I think they... Um, you know, they continue to be out there um, making the case in lots of different kinds of contexts after since that case has happened. So it's been a couple of years now since the trial. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of people think that that made a big difference. 
something uh, happened as soon as uh, people leave the White House and uh, stop running for president, Republicans suddenly start saying that they favor same-sex marriage. So maybe not George W. Bush, but his wife, his daughters. Maybe not John McCain, but his wife, his daughters. Um, and um, uh, Dick Cheney and his wife, you know, people who are moving on the issue, who are amongst the most conservative politicians in America. So I think we're definitely at a moment of rapid change from that end of things. Um, and, um, you know, does that have economic ramifications? I think it certainly does in the, in the context of being able to raise money uh, in some of these campaigns because it has kind of opened up, um, you know, opened up uh, new pockets um, and new sources of support. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, so those changes, you know, sort of all kind of are, are happening at the same time. I think there's another economic angle to this, but it sort of escaped my mind. In terms of the countries who are uh, who are doing this, yeah, it's. I think we're going to see some surprises, maybe not right away. Way back to the beginning. Um, yeah. So now we, we've got. You know, almost every part of the country but the Pacific Rim, for instance, um, or every part of the, the globe, you know, so that we've got South Africa, in Africa we've got Argentina, in South America, lots of European countries, um, Canada and the U.S., even Mexico City, you know, lots of same-sex couples get married. So I think, um, I know that other countries are thinking about this. Uh, Nepal, um, Vietnam. Um, you know, there's, there are debates that are ongoing in some of these kinds of places that you would not necessarily expect. Um, so I think, you know, it's sort of hard to know over time exactly um, which of those countries will, um, you know, will be the the, the first at, at that at sort of breaking out of the advanced industrial economies. Uh, but it but it will happen in probably in the next few years. That's a much safer bet than what happens to Prop 8. <laughs> Okay. Um, we're going to have to close now, but as I said, there is a reception at the Gender Institute. I see a lot of familiar faces here, um, so I'm assuming that a good portion of you know how to get there. If you don't know how to get there, you just go out onto the main road and follow the crowd, or go um, out onto Aldwych and turn left, and it's in Columbia House on the fifth floor. Um, and thank you very much for... Thank you.